Welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast for Wednesday, December 2nd, 2020. I'm Steve Baldwin, and today's show includes comments from LA County Board of Supervisors Chair Catherine Barger, followed by an update on COVID-19 led by Dr. Barbara Ferrer, Director of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. To keep up with our department on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LA Public Health, or visit our website, publichealth.lacounty.gov. And now, here's Supervisor Barger. To discuss additional targeted strategies to combat the spread of COVID. I also had a virtual meeting with Caltech, which has published a robust COVID modeling platform that projects the trends and impacts from policy decisions in our communities. While this model shows challenging days ahead, it also highlights the rigor at which our communities have combated this virus. We should, rely on, we should rely on the experts around us, not only to look at the data each day, but also at what modeling data projects uh, for the future, especially as we continue to consider ongoing restrictions throughout our communities. But we must continue to take personal responsibility to slow the spread. Around the world, including here in the U.S., many jurisdictions are seeing cases, hospitalizations, and fatalities rise. And while the rate of transmission in Los Angeles County is lower than neighboring San Bernardino County and Orange County, the number of positive cases continues to rise. Working together, we can bring these cases down. The risk to our healthcare system is real. Our healthcare professionals have worked admirably to decrease the threat of this virus, and I would like to give a special shout out to our nurses who truly are the backbone of our healthcare system. The county is at a critical juncture in our response to COVID, especially as we are preparing to distribute the vaccine. We must utilize all the resources and experts at our disposal to best serve our communities and protect the overall health and well-being of our children and of our adults. And of course, as always, we want to remind everyone to please continue to wear a mask, wash your hands frequently, observe six feet of space, and please, please, please do not congregate with people you do not live with. Today will be the last day I host these press briefings. My term as chair of the Board of Supervisors ends next week, and the chair term for my colleague, Supervisor Hilda Solis, will begin. Supervisor Solis will be here to provide the update next week. I would like to thank you all for your partnership throughout this process and your willingness to do your part to slow the spread of COVID-19. I really, really appreciate everything you all have done. With that, I will turn it over to Dr. Barbara Ferrer. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you, Supervisor Barger. Uh, today, I'll be updating you on the continued alarming numbers of COVID-19 cases, positivity rates, hospitalizations, and deaths. I'll also provide information on the impact of the surge on the groups of people who have been disproportionately affected throughout the pandemic. I'll also share an update on our Community Health Worker Outreach Initiative. We're seeing terrifying increases in numbers in LA County that can only be turned around if everyone, businesses and individuals, carefully use the tools we have to slow the spread. Wear face covering, distance, stay away from crowds and gatherings, and follow all of the business protocols to protect workers and customers. There are no activities uh, where people shouldn't be wearing a face covering if they're outside their home, except for swimming. Everywhere people go, they should be able to keep at least six feet away from others, and there should be no crowding. 
If you still doubt that the science is solid, take a look at what's happening in states where there are no requirements or controls. Unfortunately, these states are experiencing surges in case rates that dwarf states with tight control measures. In North Dakota, where there are few controls, the case rate is around 10,000 cases per 100,000 people per day. It's estimated that one in every 800 residents has died of COVID-19 in that state. Iowa's case rate is over 7,000 cases per 100,000 people per day, and they too have very few restrictions. As a comparison, California, with some of the tightest controls in the country, has a case rate of around 3,000 cases per 100,000 people. Requirements and safety measures work in slowing the spread. Yesterday, we reported our highest daily number of cases and hospitalizations since the beginning of the pandemic. We do have a choice to make, each one of us. Do we want to be part of the solution to this horrifying surge, or do we want to be the problem? Because where you fall in this effort now has a life or death consequence, possibly for people you know and love, but certainly for people across the county who are loved by others. First, to update you on our current status. And I think there should be a slide. Uh, we're sad to report today 40 additional people have passed away. 22 of the people who died are over the age of 80, and 17 people who passed away in this age group had underlying health conditions. Eight people who died are between the ages of 65 and 79, and six people in this age group had underlying health conditions. Six people passed away between the ages of 50 and 64, and five people had underlying health conditions. Two people who died are between the ages of 30 and 49, and none of the people in this age group had underlying health conditions. Information on the two deaths reported by the City of Long Beach is available at longbeach.gov. Of the newly uh, reported 38 deaths today, excluding Long Beach, Six people uh, who passed away resided in our skilled nursing facilities. This does unfortunately bring the total number of people who have passed away from COVID-19 in LA County to 7,740. The numbers are devastating and our deepest condolences go out to everyone who's mourning the loss of a loved one or a friend. We are very sorry for your loss. For the 7,305 people who passed away where race and ethnicity has been identified, 52% are Latinx, Latina, Latino, 24% are white, 14% are Asian, 9% are black, slightly less than 1% are Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, and 1% identified with another race or ethnicity. We're reporting 5,987 new cases today. And this does bring the total number of cases in LA County to 414,185. These cases include a total of 16,786 cases reported by our partners in the city of Long Beach and 3,746 cases reported by the city of Pasadena. We're also reporting a total of 2,439 confirmed cases among people experiencing homelessness. There are 2,439 people currently hospitalized with COVID-19. 24% of the people who are hospitalized are in the ICU, and 13% are 
are on ventilators. We've investigated a total of 2,771 outbreaks uh, where there's at least one confirmed case of COVID-19. Currently, we have 751 ongoing investigations and we've closed to date 2,020 investigations. The total number of confirmed cases at institutional settings is 44,263. This includes 21,313 cases among residents and 22,952 among staff. Uh, we're reporting 4,104 confirmed cases at some point in jail facilities, 3,567 among people who are incarcerated and 537 among staff. There are 299 cases in the state prison, 217 among people who are incarcerated and 82 among staff, and 762 cases in the federal prison facilities, 743 among people who are incarcerated and 19 among staff. Today there's 207 cases in the juvenile facilities, 98 among youth and 109 among staff. To date, over 3.7 million people have been tested and had test results reported to LA County. The cumulative positivity rate remains 10%. I'll take the, sli the first slide. Okay. Uh, it's important uh, always for us to review the metrics we have for monitoring uh, where, we, where we stand and where we're headed. Uh, this slide shows the seven-day average number of COVID-19 cases by episode date. Episode date is the date a person took a test or first experienced COVID-19 symptoms. As you can see on this graph, the surge in COVID-19 cases in LA County continues and has far surpassed the peak cases during the summer. From November 1st through November 22nd, three weeks, the average daily cases increased by 225% from 1,223 to 3,976. And this past week and a half, we've seen this average jump to over 5,300 cases per day. The next slide. This slide shows our test positivity rate or the percentage of tests that are done that come back positive. Like cases, our positivity rate is also increasing. On November 30th, the positivity rate for LA County was 10.2% compared to 3.9% on November 1st. And today, the positivity rate is over 12%. Next slide. As cases have surged, so too have the number of people becoming seriously ill and requiring hospitalization. On November 15th, the average daily number of people hospitalized for COVID-19 was 1,063. Two weeks later, on November 28th, that number had increased to 2,062. This is a 94% increase over two weeks. And as a reminder, today we reported 2,439 people currently hospitalized with serious illness. In a few minutes, Dr. Galley will be sharing information about the implications of these steep increases on hospital capacity. Next slide. Sadly, but unfortunately not surprising, the daily number of people passing away from COVID-19 is also following the similar trend that we're seeing in cases and hospitalizations. 
and we're now beginning to see a sharp increase. Since November 9th, average daily deaths have increased 92% from 12 average deaths per day to 23. This past week, our average daily deaths uh, climbed again uh, to over 30 uh, per day. Because we know that these deaths reflect case counts from a month ago, as cases continue to increase, we should all be extremely distressed about what this likely means for the number of deaths that we'll continue to see, as they too will increase. These numbers represent real people. They're our neighbors, our friends, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our cousins. We ask that all businesses and residents closely follow the health officer orders uh, and this is one of the most important reasons to do so, to prevent suffering and to prevent death. Next slide. As we do every two weeks, I'm going to drill down on the data we have that shows how different groups of restaurants, of, re of residents, are faring in terms of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. As cases surge, it is very clear and quite alarming that certain groups are once again bearing a greater burden than others. The gaps between race and ethnicity groups, uh, where we made a lot of progress in closing um, in September, have now once again dramatically widened, particularly for our Latino residents. Uh, all groups, as you will see, uh, are in fact experiencing increases. This slide does show the daily age-adjusted rate of cases per 100,000 people broken down by race and ethnicity since late April through November 20th. The top line in yellow is the case rate for our Latino, Latina, Latinx residents. Latinx residents are now seeing a seven-day cumulative rate of 270 new cases per 100,000 people. This is over twice the rate of white residents, the group with the second highest rate uh, at about 125 cases per 100,000 per 100,000 people. Black residents are seeing 112 new cases each day, and Asian residents are seeing around 80, 112 uh, cases over a seven-day average. Uh, the next slide, please. As with cases, the gaps in hospitalization rates across race and ethnicity groups are also widening. Latinx residents, again shown here in yellow, have a hospitalization rate of 24 per 100,000 people. This is about three times that of white residents, the orange line, whose rate is nine per 100,000, and Asian residents, the blue line, where the rate is eight per 100,000. Black residents, which is the green line, have the second highest rate of hospitalizations at 15 uh, cases per 100,000 people. Next slide. Uh, alarmingly, while death rates among white residents and Asian residents are remaining fairly stable at around one death per 100,000 people, Latinx and black residents are experiencing increases. In less than two weeks, the death rate amongst Latinos and Latinas, the yellow line, has increased from 1.5 to three deaths per 100,000 people. The death rate for black residents also increased from less than one per 100,000 people to almost two per 100,000 people. Next slide. In addition to race and ethnicity, we also look at differences by income to understand the impact of low socio socioeconomic status on disease transmission and outcomes. Here you can see the direct relationship between high rates of poverty and high case rates. 
Those who live in areas of the county with the highest rates of cases are also the same residents uh, who are living in communities with the highest poverty rates. That's shown here in the yellow and orange lines. While all groups are seeing increases in cases, on November 20th, people living in the lowest resourced areas had a case rate of 364 cases per 100,000 people, and people living in the highest resourced areas had a case rate of 221 cases per 100,000 people. Next slide. On this graph, you can see the impact of area poverty on death rates. Those residents who live in areas with the lowest uh, resources and highest poverty rates, shown by the orange line, have experienced consistently higher rates of death compared to their more affluent neighbors, shown by the blue line. As overall deaths have begun to increase, we see that people in the lowest resourced areas are bearing a great deal of this burden. Death rates among people in communities with high rates of poverty is around three times that of people living in areas where there are more resources. The root causes that contribute to disproportionality have not disappeared. And with the increases, we need to double down on strategies that can make a difference right now. Protections for all workers has to be primary. Essential workers at manufacturing and food processing plants, at our grocery and retail stores, and those on the front lines keeping healthcare facilities open, transportation and energy systems working, and making sure that we are safe ought not to be asked once again to bear the brunt of rampant community transmission. And since this time around, we know how to protect workers, the way forward is more clear. Everyone needs to follow the rules and do the right thing. Next slide. As transmission increases in LA County, our community health worker outreach initiative remains a vital part of our outreach to those communities that have been highly impacted. This initiative is coordinating and mobilizing community health workers across the county to conduct healing-informed, grassroots community outreach. Community health workers provide accurate and up-to-date information regarding COVID-19. The goal of the Community Health Worker Outreach Initiative is to amplify COVID-19 messaging and to provide general education outreach which can include using a lot of different strategies to share basic information about COVID-19, how it's spread, what to do if you're diagnosed, and how to keep friends, family, and your community safe. Community health workers also connect residents with needed critical services, including health insurance, testing, mental health services, and other safety net services, such as food pantries, economic assistance, and housing assistance. They are sharing current public health directives and they let residents know about safety requirements as sectors that are open uh, and at the, what are the requirements for worker safety. One important role that community health workers will support is helping residents understand the importance of participating in contact tracing and dispelling myths and rumors about COVID-19. As of the end of the month, the end of November, 240 community health workers completed over 14,000 outreaches. About one-third of these activities involved in-person support for residents. One-half were in-person activities at businesses and community organizations. 18% of contacts were virtual contacts to individuals, and another 1% were virtual meetings with groups and organizations. 
During the week of November 23rd, every single person that community health workers uh, touched was able to receive general COVID-19 safety messaging. I want to extend a huge thanks to all of our partners, our community partners, and all of the community health workers who are reaching out to make sure that our communities are getting the information and the support they need to be as safe as possible during this pandemic. I'll take the next slide. Uh, finally, I'd like to show a very simple visual of how cases increase exponentially when a single infected person with COVID-19 infects an average of two other people. If you have one person who's infected, they will infect two other people. Those two people will infect an additional four people. Those four people infect an additional eight people. The eight people infect 16, 16 people infect 32. Just like this, we now have 63 cases of COVID-19. In addition, next slide, these increases have a cascading impact in populations that are of particular concern. Weekly cases amongst healthcare workers have increased 71% since the first week in November. Weekly new outbreaks at work sites have increased 172% since early November. Weekly new cases among people who are residing in skilled nursing facilities increased 89% since the beginning of November. And cases at schools, both among staff and students, increased 224% in the month of November. The virus is relentless. It will continue to be relentless until we can vaccinate the millions of residents and workers that call LA County their home. And while we are months away from completing vaccinations of all, there is a bright light at the end of this very dark tunnel, but we're just not there yet. We're now at the worst point we've experienced thus far in the pandemic. So I ask everyone, take every single precaution to protect yourself and those around you. Please commit today and through the next few months to be part of the solution to this terrible pandemic. Thank you. And now Dr. Galley will provide updates from the Department of Health Services. Hi, good afternoon. Today, I'll focus on three topics, transmission within the community and what the model is showing about community spread of COVID, our hospital's capacity across the LA County healthcare system and how that spread is impacting hospital capacity and how the hospital systems are responding. And then a little bit about access to testing and outreach and how we are working to support particularly at-risk communities throughout this pandemic. Last week, I focused on three numbers, and let's first take a look at those. So the transmission rate, or R, last week was at 1.27, a number that we hadn't seen as high as that since mid-March. This week, that number is being projected at 1.14. It is much lower than last week, but still notably above one. Also, as of last week, the COVID hospital census increased by nearly 70% over the previous two weeks. This week, we see hospitalizations continue their steep upward climb with an 85% increase in COVID census over the prior two weeks. And the third number, last week I reported that there were one in every 145 individuals across LA County who were infectious and potentially exposing others to COVID-19. 
This week, we're estimating that that number is that approximately one in every 200 individuals within the community are infectious and not appropriately isolated. So first, let's talk about transmission and transmission within the community. So recall that the hospital demand model projects R, or the effective transmission rate, which represents the average number of new infections that each new case will result in. And it does that by looking at the hospitalizations that we're actually experiencing across LA County. As a result, it's a reflection really of what R was doing two weeks ago or so, two to three weeks ago, because that's when the transmission occurred that ended up resulting in the hospitalizations that we're seeing today. And it's the best available estimate of R. If you could turn on the first slide, please. The estimated transmission number, or R, this week, as I just mentioned, is 1.14, as compared to an estimate of 1.27 last week. Although it is a good thing that the estimated R is lower than it was last week, it's important and notable that it is still above one, which means that cases will still increase over time. On the next slide, this was the slide on new COVID hospital admissions that I showed last week. Last week, we were approaching 300 new daily hospitalizations, which was a 50% increase from the week before. Go to the next slide, please. This week, we're approaching 350 new daily COVID hospitalizations across the county. This reflects a 15% increase from last week. So again, while this still is an increase, it's not as steep of an increase as what we were seeing previously. The model, though, shows a very wide range of possibilities regarding future hospital volumes, and that's indicated in that red shaded area, assuming that the transmission behavior in the community remains the same. So for example, if you'll look at that, in one week, we anticipate that we could see anywhere from 275 to 500 new COVID admissions each day in the county. Even the lower end of that range is very concerning, especially if those numbers are continued over time because they compound, because of ongoing transmission, especially in the setting of the Thanksgiving holiday that just passed. Let's shift now to talk about hospital capacity. I know that there's broad concern about the capacity of our hospital system across LA County and that this is on everyone's mind. And indeed, it's on everyone's mind across the state and across the nation. If you could turn to the next slide on hospital beds. This is the hospital bed capacity slide that I show most weeks. As you can see, the gap between the dotted red line, the number of beds, this dotted red line represents the number of beds that are currently staffed at that moment and able to serve a patient. The difference, the gap between that dotted red line and the white line is narrowing as COVID hospitalizations continue to increase. But what I want you to focus on today is just that dotted red line for a minute. As hospital bed demand has changed over the past nine months, our hospitals have responded by adjusting their capacity and adjusting the number of beds that they staff. The red line represents our supply in that moment of hospital beds, and it naturally is adjusted and varies with the demand for those beds. That's how it's supposed to work, and that is by design. Hospital capacity that policymakers often refer to typically represents, when they're talking about that, they're talking about physical beds or a hospital's licensed bed capacity. But most hospitals don't actually staff or operate all of the beds that are sitting on their license or that they have physically constructed. And physical beds are not the limiting factor in this or most other pandemics. 
What matters is a hospital's practical ability to take care of the patients that come in the door. And that requires not just a bed, but more importantly, it requires people, it requires staff, it requires supplies and equipment. So that number, which is what that red dotted line represents each day, is constantly evolving. So there's no single one capacity number that we can refer to. We do report it out daily on the DHS COVID dashboard, which is posted on the DHS website. And you can always look there for the latest data. The total number of available beds that are being reported today is 963. But instead of focusing on that one capacity number as if it's static, we need to focus instead on the variables that impact the availability of beds for patients who have COVID-19 and need hospital level care. To create additional capacity to care for these patients, hospitals do many things. So they bring in new staff from the community or from outside areas. As I've mentioned before, this is very challenging in a pandemic because there's a demand for staff across many hospital systems and across the state and across the nation. Hospitals can also redeploy staff that they have that have the necessary training and skill sets from other parts of their system, so from outpatient areas or procedure areas. This is a very important option for hospitals, and it requires, though, decreasing non-essential outpatient services, but it can importantly help add bed capacity when it's most needed. And then also hospitals can cancel non-essential procedures and work to discharge patients who can be safely cared for in lower level of care settings. Hospitals have used all of these tactics over the next nine months, last nine months, and will certainly need to do so again as they prepare for patients with COVID. They also have greatly improved access to testing and personal protective equipment. We have a more nuanced understanding of the virus, and thankfully we have some treatments that can shorten hospital stay and also help improve mortality. These steps have helped to lower the length of stay for patients who are hospitalized with COVID from what we saw earlier in the pandemic of 8.3 to what we're currently experiencing across the county of approximately 7.0. This is despite the fact that some of the lower acuity patients who we might assume have shorter hospital lengths of stay are actually now being taken care of in the community. They're receiving home oxygen and they're not being admitted whereas earlier in the pandemic they might have been admitted because people thought they required inpatient level of care. On the next slide, the ICU slide, you'll see the current and limited capacity of available intensive care unit or ICU beds. Again, this reflects the number of beds that we have available today, right now, not the numbers that can be created through additional staffing or by canceling elective surgeries and procedures. Today's number that's being reported on that COVID dashboard is 122. While hospitals will use all of the tactics available to them to be able to increase the staffing and supply of beds, please know that those resources are not unlimited. Staffing is tight, and it's tighter than it normally would be in a hospital because all hospitals have staff that are out on quarantine, who are out sick caring for themselves or family members, or who are in isolation themselves. Based on current modeling, unless there has been and continues to be changes in community transmission, we do anticipate that we will have a shortage of ICU beds over the next four weeks. Hospitals will have to take substantive action to meet the need for hospital and particularly ICU level of care. This could notably 
include changing the patient to staff ratios in which staff would be asked to care for more patients than they typically would. This is not an ideal situation and can lead to suboptimal outcomes for patients, but is important last option that is available to hospitals that are facing a high volume of patients. You can turn off the slides. While we're in a better position now to provide care than we were in March, there are limits to the care that can be provided within our health system. Our hospital system today is able to meet the demand. We have available beds, but we all have to do our part to limit spread so that we don't end up in the situation that is projected in some of those models, a situation that could be dangerous for patients and for staff alike. If steps to curb transmission are abandoned, then the number of people requiring hospitalization can still overwhelm any additional capacity that hospitals are able to create. Hospital staff, who I'm incredibly grateful for, are doing an amazing job to meet the needs of patients across the county. I would ask that all of the public do their part to be disciplined in following the public health guidance. This guidance is known and has proven in the past to reduce the transmission of COVID, and it can do so again. What everyone does today will make a difference, and it will make a difference in what we see in our hospitals two to three weeks from now. The single biggest thing you can do in that respect is to stay home as much as possible. And if you can't or are unable to stay home, then please wear a mask and please don't mingle with others outside of your household. Finally, I'll share some information about efforts to increase equity and access to testing within communities. First, today, Los Angeles County launched the Community Equity Fund with various community-based organizations. 51 local community-based organizations, or CBOs, were selected to help prevent COVID-19 in their communities. The Community Equity Fund is a joint effort between the Department of Health Services and the Department of Public Health in collaboration and partnership with an organization, Community Partners, a nonprofit that will coordinate with all of the CBOs. The fund was designed to help slow the spread of COVID-19 in communities that are disproportionately hit with COVID-19. The cadre of CBOs will receive funding to provide a range of services, including outreach, education, case investigation, contact tracing, communications. They'll also receive critical linkages to health and social services where needed. I would like to congratulate these 51 organizations. We are very grateful for their dedication and their knowledge of the communities that they will serve, and we look forward to partnering with them. A full list of those communities that were ordered, that were offered an award, will be released soon. Second, at-home test specimen collection will soon be launched over the next couple of days by the county. In terms of testing, there are testing slots that remain at county, state, and city-operated testing sites across the county. And as always, you can sign up for one of those testing slots online, or always you can also seek a testing appointment through your established health care provider or established health system. But to support access to testing, particularly with what we anticipate will be a rising demand for tests, DHS will launch over the next couple of days an at-home test collection option. This is a pilot program that we will work, that we will implement for the, at least the next six weeks, and it's designed to reduce COVID-19 spread throughout the holiday season. The home test collection program will start over the next couple of days, and it will run through at least January 15th. Individuals will be able to have test specimen collection kits mailed to their home where they can self-swab 
and then mail the sample back to the lab. This will be available for people who have any symptoms of COVID, who are a confirmed or suspected contact of someone with COVID, and especially for seniors and persons with disabilities who are unable to easily get access to one of the in-person collection sites. At-home testing allows us to reach even more people, and especially people who have trouble, as I mentioned, accessing those in-person sites, and who might have risk of infecting others if they uh, aren't able to easily get access to testing. When this launches, to register for uh, receipt of one of these at-home test collection kits, individuals should go to the LA County COVID-19 testing site. The program will launch initially in English with soon availability um, in the very near future in Spanish as well as in a few additional languages. I know that we are in the midst of a difficult and very frustrating time in the county. It has been a long and ongoing struggle, I know, for everybody. But I urge each and every one of you to do your part. We have made huge strides as a result of the collective effort in the past, and we need to continue that good work. Hope is on the horizon. We have several promising vaccines that hopefully will receive approval soon. Until then, we need to do the hard work everyone needs to do the hard work to keep the virus from spreading. We are at a critical point and it will take every single person's effort. I thank you for taking the public health precautions uh, very seriously and wish everyone good health. We'll now take questions. Ladies and gentlemen, if you wish to ask questions over the phone, you may press 1 then 0 on your telephone keypad and you may withdraw your question at any time by repeating the 1-0 command. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up the handset before pressing the numbers. Once again, if you have a question, you may press 1 then 0 at this time. And we also uh, request if you can limit yourself to one question. Thank you. And we'll go to our first question. That is from the line of Claudia Pashuda with KNX News Radio. Please go ahead with your question. Hey, Claudia. Just let you know, it's a little hard to hear the operator. Um, so uh, the CDC says that quarantine periods can be shortened. So I'm wondering if LA County is going to go along with that. Uh, number two, given the record breaking numbers that we're already seeing and the fact that uh, the impacts of Thanksgiving later this month may drive the numbers up even further. Um, how likely do you think it is that the safer at home order will be extended? And then um, I'm just curious what happens if public health officials and a majority of the Board of Supervisors disagree on restrictions? Um, who, who makes the final call on things? Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll answer the last one first. Obviously, this last week with the restaurant supervisors, Han and I felt very strongly that we should at least postpone for two weeks and work with the restaurant industry. But in the past, there have been votes taken to open breweries, card rooms, um, where the board did take a vote, and it was three to two. And when that happens, the public health officer makes clear in her public health officer report that the board has instructed her to do that. So it has been done both with us, with actually myself on the losing end, and also um, when I voted in favor of opening up an industry that was, was not recommended by the Department of Public Health. And I'll let Dr. Farrar answer the other two. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, and, and we're aware CDC did issue 
um, new recommendations today. I mean, it starts with the recommendation that wherever possible, everyone should still do the 14-day uh, quarantine period. Sorry. Uh, it starts with the CDC reaffirming that, uh, you know, the, the best quarantine period is still 14 days. Uh, if you can't do the 14 days, uh, they've narrowed it to a couple of other options. Uh, one is 10 days, again, no symptoms. Uh, you'd, you know, once you have symptoms, you need to go get tested. And uh, if you're positive, you would move into isolation. And the other is seven days and, and on the seven, you know, getting a test uh, that's negative uh, on that seventh day. Uh, and then that would sort of allow you to have a little bit more security about leaving uh, your quarantine early because that's, you'd still be leaving the quarantine early. We are working with the state um, so that we align across the state with a set of recommendations uh, on options. And I want to call them options on, on quarantining because nobody is disagreeing uh, at all that the best thing to do is to quarantine for the full 14 days. This is really meant to help those people who are finding it impossible for a variety of reasons uh, to maintain a 14-day quarantine period and trying to offer some options uh, that, while not ideal, uh, offer uh, more safety than just uh, not doing anything at all, not adhering to any quarantine uh, restrictions. In terms of uh, safer-at-home orders and extending them, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be driven by the data. I mean, obviously, uh, the better job we all do at adhering to what's in front of us right now and the safety modifications, and I liked uh, what Dr. Galley was saying, you know, this is the time to stay home. You are safer at home. This is particularly true if you have underlying health conditions uh, or you're elderly. Uh, there's a lot of people circulating who are infected, and many, many of them have no symptoms. So anything you can do to avoid coming in contact with other people at this point in time is the most sensible course of action. Uh, and again, uh, we will probably start, uh, we're starting to see right now actually the impact of lots of people testing the week of Thanksgiving and we'll continue then, as you noted, Claudia, uh, seeing you know, uh, two weeks out, one to two weeks out from Thanksgiving, the impact of uh, what people's actions were uh, and those people, obviously, I want to thank who took every single precaution. Uh, and I want to remind people, if you didn't uh, and you traveled out of state, uh, you are asked to do a voluntary uh, self-quarantine for 14 days uh, at your home so you don't risk infecting others. But uh, thanks for that. We'll take the next question. Yes, and this is uh, the operator. I just wanted to make sure you could hear me okay. I apologize. Yep, go ahead. Okay, thanks. I moved my microphone. Uh, the next uh, person in the queue, Ron Lynn with LA Times. Please go ahead. Hello. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Dr. Galley, uh, Santa Clara County said some of its core hospitals serving the neediest areas are now at 90% of ICU capacity, and uh, some of its hospitals have very few ICU beds left. Are any LA County hospitals in this dire situation? And, and also, why do you think the effective transmission rate dropped? Is a result of the warning we've been making, or do you think it's, are we seeing an effect of the outdoor dining ban, or is that too soon to show? And to Dr. Ferrer, can you, um, do you know what the state is considering in and its timeline in terms of additional health orders? Are you considering having hospitals cancel elective surgeries? Do you have any more details about why cases are increasing at schools? Are these students or teachers? And can you address concerns about healthcare worker exhaustion? Thanks so much. 
Hi, I'll take the first couple of questions. Um, on the ICU capacity, no, none of the DHS hospitals are in a dire situation. Our total COVID capacity is still um, approximately 50 or 60 patients below the peak that we saw in July. And again, all of those numbers will be posted on a daily basis on the DHS website. So if you're interested in following both the total bed um, demand from COVID patients across all 911 receiving hospitals in the county and then also the four DHS hospitals. That data is posted on a daily basis, but we still have um, available ICU and medical surgical and step-down beds within DHS. And then on the second question of why the decline in the R, I think it's a combination of factors. Uh, and certainly that just speaks to the fact that it takes everyone doing their part to be able to make a change in what we see in the transmission. The R is down because that rate of increase is slightly slower, but again, it still is incre an increase. The R is still above one. Cases are still going up. Hospitalizations are still going up, and we anticipate will continue to go up. But it's a combination of, of hopefully people wearing their masks, hopefully people following the guidance from Thanksgiving and limiting their interaction with those outside of their household, um, as well as some of the um, restrictions on businesses. I think all of this has a hand in it, and it, I, I at least am not able to pinpoint any one single factor. Thank you. And our uh, last question is going to be from the line of David Rosenfeld with LA Daily News. Please before, go ahead. before we go, operator, I just want to finish answering the questions um, uh, from the previous caller because he had asked a, a fair number of questions. Um, in terms of uh, it, will there be an additional health officer order and what would be the timing on that? You know, our hope is that the health officer order that's out there now, a temporary targeted safer at home order works uh, and we're going to be watching our numbers really carefully uh, but as you know um, if it doesn't work uh, we'd be looking at options uh, additional options um, as I think all counties are right now uh, the hope is that it works and it, we do know it takes a little bit of time for all of this to work I do want to note once you have a lot of community transmission you continue to have a lot of community transmission for a while and we all need to be prepared for that. And it really does explain why we're also seeing in increases in cases, sorry, increases in cases and increase, increases in cases amongst healthcare workers. And as you noted, uh, and I noted, increases in cases amongst both staff and students at schools. Everybody lives uh, in a community uh, and, and lives uh, with other members in their household often. Um, and when you have a lot of community transmission, uh, you can get uh, infected at a, a variety of sites. You can get infected at work. You could get infected in the community. You can get infected at your home. The more there's a, a lot of community transmission, the easier it is for any single person to infect somebody else and for other people uh, to become infected. And that's what we're seeing is as soon as community transmission rates go pretty high, and as I've noted, you know, our, our test positivity rate is now over 12%. That's, that's a, more than a doubling of where we were a couple of weeks ago, as soon as you start seeing that, uh, you are in fact going to see cases yeah. everywhere, and, and that's increases in cases everywhere, uh, and that's what we're seeing. We're not in bubbles. Uh, we all interact with other people. We're all in this together. We all have to help each other. Um, and in terms of hospital restrictions uh, from a, you know, through a health officer order, um, I think that that at this moment is really not likely or necessary mostly because we have a very good working relationship with all of our hospitals. We'll be meeting again uh, with the Hospital Association of uh, Southern California and the L.A. County Hospitals this week. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, preparation 
uh, for the significant increase uh, that we are definitely going to see in terms of people seeking hospital care. You know, at the state, it's averaging about 12 percent. Here, we think the most recent numbers are closer to 10 percent of people who are positive are ending up in the hospital. And, and we already know how many people were positive the last couple of weeks. Uh, so there's, there's a, uh, a pretty easy way to do some predictions and then work closely with the hospitals, uh, as Dr. Galley mentioned, to make sure that uh, everyone's making wise decisions uh, that actually ensure that there's resources to take care of not just COVID-19 patients, but other patients uh, that need care as well. And with that, we'll go on to the next question. Last question. Thank you. That is from David Rosenfeld with LA Daily News. Please go ahead. Hi. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. I'm disappointed we only got three questions in today, but thank you for taking mine. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, early on in the pandemic, uh, was said that stay-at-home order, orders and shutdowns were sort of a blunt force instrument. Uh, now, so many months later, uh, we're back to this same method, and you're hearing more backlash than ever from city leaders, business owners, supervisors, calling for a more nuanced approach. Uh, so I'm wondering, um, you know, what is something that we've learned about this virus that could, uh, that, that, that could create this sort of um, a, a more refined approach to, to combating it? And, and what might that look like if you, if you were to enact that? I know you're working with researchers, but is there anything that you can foretell as far as what that might look like and, and, and maybe that might give people more confidence or uh, more faith to follow these rules because we're also seeing so much fatigue uh, because we're just sort of getting the same message. We just listened to 40 minutes of essentially a carbon copy of, uh, you know, for, for months now. So I'm wondering what is new? What can we do differently? Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for the question. And, uh, and obviously, um, we did do some things differently uh, with this last round, and it is because of precisely what you said, what we've learned. Uh, when we first issued the health, Safer at Home order back in uh, March and April, uh, it was everyone just stay home. We didn't really have a lot of tools in the toolkit, uh, and we didn't know a lot about this virus. It, it is a novel virus, and we continue to learn every day about the properties of this virus. But one thing that's clear at this point is that wearing a face covering offers a lot of protection. Uh, not only does it offer protection to the people around you, but it ends up now offering you some protection as well. Um, so for us, one of these, the, the tools we can use this time is to be strategic about those activities where people can wear a face covering and feel more confident uh, that those activities uh, may be able to happen with more safety than we knew was possible when we didn't know about wearing face coverings. And the same thing on distancing. We have a lot more information that indicates uh, the virus travels and about how far it travels ordinarily. And the combination of masking and distancing ends up, being, uh, ends up offering a fair amount of protection. So you'll see in this last health officer order what it really attempted to do was to limit places where people were intermingling uh, with others that weren't in their household to limit the capacity at those places so there wouldn't be a lot of crowding, uh, so that you always could keep your distance. And of course, at all of those places, you would always have a face covering on. Uh, you know, that's very different than what we did uh, 
you know, months ago when we actually closed uh, all of non-essential retail, all of non-essential business, because we didn't really have the tools we have now. The problem with the tools we have now, in all honesty, is that people have to then use them. So if we craft a health office order that really relies on mask wearing, distancing, infection control, both on the part of businesses and on the part of individuals, and people, as you said, are fatigued uh, and don't really want to continue uh, to do, take these basic precautionary steps, uh, then this approach doesn't work as well as it ought to. Thank you. Thank now you. we're going to do uh, in Spanish. Thank you. Thank you. Muy buenas tardes a todos. Gracias a la supervisora Barger y a toda la junta de supervisores en este, eh, por su apoyo y liderazgo en estos momentos tan difíciles. Hoy estaremos actualizándolos sobre los continuos y alarmantes aumentos en los casos del COVID-19, las tasas de positividad y hospitalizaciones y también los fallecimientos. Además, vamos a ponerlos al día sobre el aumento que está afectando a los grupos de personas que se han visto perjudicados de una manera bastante fuerte en esta pandemia. También compartiremos con ustedes el progreso que está logrando nuestra iniciativa de alcance de los trabajadores de salud comunitarios o promotores de salud. Estamos viviendo incrementos y números en el condado de Los Ángeles que aún no hemos visto antes. Estos terribles aumentos podrían haberse evitado si todos los negocios y las personas hubiesen utilizado cuidadosamente las herramientas que tenemos, tales como el uso de las cubiertas de tela para la cara, mantenerse alejado y guardar su distanciamiento físico y, sobre todo, seguir los protocolos para frenar esta propagación. Ayer informamos nuestro mayor número de casos diarios y hospitalizaciones desde el comienzo de la pandemia. Cada uno de nosotros debe tener la responsabilidad de tomar una decisión. ¿Queremos ser la solución a esta terrible oleada o queremos ser parte del problema? Porque si realmente bajamos la guardia, entonces esto va a tener consecuencias o lamentablemente muertes no solo para nuestros seres queridos, sino también para todos los residentes de nuestro condado. Ahora, para actualizarlos sobre nuestro estado de hoy, estamos tristes de reportar 40 fallecimientos adicionales. Esto eleva el número total de fallecimientos a 7,740 en el condado de Los Ángeles. Hoy estamos reportando 5,987 casos nuevos. Esto eleva el número total de casos en el condado de Los Ángeles a 414,185. Estamos reportando 2,439 casos confirmados entre las personas sin hogar. También 2,439 casos confirmados están en hospitalizaciones actualmente y el 24% están en unidades de cuidado intensivo y el 13% están en ventiladores. El total de casos confirmados en entornos institucionales es de 44,263, incluidos los residentes 21,311, 
residentes y 22.952 son personal. Nos da tristeza informar que 3.197 residentes en entornos institucionales han fallecido por causas del COVID-19. 2.821 de estas personas residían en centros de enfermería especializada. Estamos reportando 4.104 casos confirmados en algún momento en las cárceles. Hay 299 casos en la prisión estatal y 762 casos en las prisiones federales. También tenemos 207 casos en los centros de menores. Más de 3.7 millones de resultados de pruebas del COVID-19 en el condado de Los Ángeles y el 10% fueron positivas. Next slide, please. Siguiente. Ahora revisemos los indicadores que hemos estado monitoreando durante estos meses para comprender cómo está yendo el condado en la reducción de la transmisión del COVID-19. Este gráfico muestra el número diario promedio de siete días de, de casos del COVID-19 por fecha de episodio. La fecha del episodio es la fecha en que una persona se hizo la prueba o experimentó por primera vez los síntomas del COVID-19. Como podemos ver en este gráfico, el aumento de los casos de los, del COVID en el condado de Los Ángeles continúa y ha superado con creces el aumento de casos durante este verano. Desde el primero de noviembre hasta el 22 de noviembre, solo tres semanas, el promedio de casos diarios aumentó a un 225% de 1.223 a 3.976 en las últimas semanas y media. Hemos visto este aumento promedio a más de 5.300 casos por día. Next slide, please. Este gráfico muestra nuestras tasas de positividad de la prueba o el porcentaje de pruebas que se realizan y dan positivo. Como en los casos, eh, nuestra tasa de positividad también está aumentando. El 30 de noviembre, la tasa de positividad para el condado de Los Ángeles fue del 10.2, en comparación con el 3.9% el primero de noviembre. Next slide, please. La cantidad diaria de hospitalizaciones de personas con el COVID-19 es una muestra de nuestros indicadores más confiables para comprender cómo estamos haciendo para reducir la transmisión del virus. Esto nos deja saber cuántas personas se han enfermado y a medida que aumentaron los casos, vemos que las hospitalizaciones tuvieron un gran incremento. El 15 de noviembre, el número promedio diario de personas hospitalizadas por COVID-19 fue de 1,063. Dos semanas después, el 28 de noviembre, ese número había aumentado a 2,062. Esto es un aumento del 94% en solo dos semanas. Como recordatorio, hoy informamos que 2,439 personas están hospitalizadas con condiciones delicadas de salud por causa del COVID-19. Lamentablemente, no es sorprendente que el número diario 
de personas que fallecen a causa de COVID, como podemos ver, sigue la tendencia de casos y hospitalizaciones. Estamos comenzando a ver un fuerte aumento desde el 9 de noviembre hasta el 22 de noviembre. El promedio de muertes diarias ha aumentado a 92% de 12 a 23. La semana pasada, el promedio de fallecimientos se incrementó a 138. Queremos que presten suma atención en lo que nos comunica este gráfico. Sabemos que estos fallecimientos son el resultado de acciones tomadas hace aproximadamente un mes. Entonces, a medida que los casos continúan aumentando, todos deberíamos estar enormemente angustiados por lo que realmente significa la cantidad de fallecimientos que continuaremos observando y que a la vez continuarán desarrollándose. Como vemos, estos números representan seres humanos, nuestros vecinos, nuestros amigos, padres, abuelos, hermanos. Por lo tanto, pedimos la cooperación de los negocios y los residentes de nuestro condado que por favor sigan las órdenes de los oficiales de salud. Al hacer esto, evitaremos el sufrimiento y el fallecimiento de más víctimas. Next slide, please. Ahora, como hacemos cada dos semanas, voy a vamos a profundizar en los datos que nos muestra lo que está sucediendo con los diferentes grupos de residentes, hospitalizaciones y fallecimientos. Eh, a medida que aumentan los casos, es muy claro y bastante alarmante que ciertos grupos están sobrellevando una carga mayor que otros. Las brechas entre los grupos raciales y étnicos que progresamos en cerrar en septiembre ahora se han ampliado de una manera más drástica, especialmente para nuestra comunidad latina en comparación con otros grupos, aunque otros grupos también están habiendo aumentos. Este gráfico nos muestra la tasa diaria de los casos ajustados por edad de 100,000 personas, separados por raza y etnicidad, desde finales de abril hasta el 22 de noviembre. La línea amarilla es la tasa de casos para los residentes latinos. Los residentes latinos ahora están viendo una tasa acumulada de 7 días de 270 nuevos casos por cada 100,000 personas. Esto es el doble de los casos de los residentes blancos. Al el grupo con la segunda tasa de casos más alta, aproximadamente de 125 casos por, 100, por, por día. Perdón. Los residentes afroamericanos están teniendo alrededor de 112 casos nuevos por día. Y los residentes asiáticos tienen 80 casos por día. Next slide, please. Como ocurre... Los casos, las brechas en las tasas de hospitalizaciones, grupos raciales y étnicos también se están aumentando. Los residentes latinos, la línea amarilla, tienen una tasa de hospitalización de 24 por cada 100.000 personas. Esto es aproximadamente tres veces mayor que la de los residentes blancos en la línea anaranjada, cuya tasa de, es de 9 por cada 100.000 en la línea azul. Tenemos a los residentes asiáticos, cuya tasa es de 8% por cada 100.000 personas. Los residentes afroamericanos, la línea verde, 
tiene una segunda tasa más alta en hospitalizaciones por cada 100.000 personas. Eh, ahora, next slide, please. De manera alarmante, mientras que las tasas de mortalidad entre los residentes blancos y residentes asiáticos se mantienen bastante estables, por lo menos un fallecimiento por cada 100.000 personas, en los residentes latinos y afroamericanos se están notando un fuerte aumento. En menos de dos semanas, la tasa de mortalidad entre los latinos, la línea amarilla, se ha aumentado de 1.5 a 3 fallecimientos por cada 100.000 personas. La tasa de mortalidad de los residentes afroamericanos ha aumentado de 1 por cada 100.000 personas a 1.7 por cada 100.000 personas. Next slide, please. Además, la raza y etnicidad a la vez observamos las diferencias por ingresos para comprender el impacto del bajo nivel socioeconómico en la tra transmisión y los resultados de la enfermedad. Aquí pueden observar la relación directa entre los índices de pobreza y las altas tasas de casos. Por ejemplo, eh, aquellos que viven en áreas del condado con tasas más altas de los casos también son los mismos que tienen las tasas más altas de pobreza. Lo vemos aquí en la línea amarilla y la anaranjada. Si bien todos los grupos están viendo aumentos en los casos, el 22 de noviembre las personas que vivían en las áreas de menores recursos tenían una tasa de 364 casos por cada 100.000 personas. Y las personas que vivían en las zonas de mayores recursos tenían una tasa de 221 casos por cada 100.000 personas. Next slide, please. En este gráfico podemos observar el impacto del área de pobreza en las tasas de mortalidad. Los residentes que viven en áreas de los, con recursos más, alt, más bajos, perdón, en la línea anaranjada, ha tenido constantes tasas más altas de fallecimientos en comparación con sus vecinos del nivel más económico más alto en la línea azul. A medida que los fallecimientos han comenzado a aumentar, vemos que las personas con menores recursos están sobrellevando una gran parte de esta carga. Las tasas de mortalidad entre las personas de las zonas de menores recursos es casi tres veces mayor que la de las personas que viven en las zonas con menores recursos, con mejores recursos, perdón. Next slide, please. A medida que aumenta la transmisión en el condado de Los Ángeles, la iniciativa del alcance para los trabajadores de salud comunitaria o promotores de salud sigue siendo una parte vital para nuestras comunidades más afectadas. Esta iniciativa está coordinando y movilizando a los profesionales de la salud en la comunidad en todo el condado para llevar a cabo la actividad de extensión comunitaria que se basa en la capacitación de educar a las personas sobre eh, lo, lo del COVID-19. Esto brinda información precisa y actualizada. ¿Cuál es el objetivo de esta iniciativa? es darle o brindarle una mejor educación a toda la comunidad acerca del COVID-19. Usar diferentes estrategias para compartir una información básica sobre el COVID-19 que 
cómo se puede contagiar, qué hacer cuando le diagnostican COVID y lo más importante, mantener seguros a sus amigos, familiares y sobre todo su comunidad. A los trabajadores comunitarios de salud también dan apoyo a los residentes de servicios esenciales que incluyen seguros médicos, pruebas, servicios de salud mental y otros servicios de las redes de seguridad, como por ejemplo la despensa de alimentos y asistencia para la vivienda. A su vez, se están impartiendo normativas de la salud pública vigentes e informan a los residentes sobre los requisitos de seguridad en los sectores que están abiertos. También la seguridad de los trabajadores esenciales. Un papel muy importante que respaldan nuestros promotores de salud es ayudar a los residentes a comprender la importancia de participar en el rastreo de contactos y eliminar los mitos y rumores errados sobre el COVID-19. Hasta el 29 de noviembre, 214 trabajadores comunitarios de salud han completado más de 14.000 campañas de integración comunitaria. La mitad es, estaba en personas con un negocio, o, negocio perdón, u organización. El 18% de los contactos se realizaron de forma virtual, individual, y el 1% fue a través de reuniones virtuales con un grupo u organizaciones. Durante la semana del 23 de noviembre, cada contacto recibió mensajes generales de seguridad del COVID-19 y el 8% recibió información sobre nuestro programa de certificación comercial. El 12% recibió mensajes para ayudar a las comunidades religiosas o de fe. Queremos extender un gran agradecimiento a todos los trabajadores de la salud pública comunitarios que están cooperando con este arduo proyecto para asegurar que nuestras comunidades obtengan la información y la educación que necesitan para estar más seguro, lo más seguro posible durante esta pandemia. Next slide, please. Finalmente, nos gustaría mostrarles de forma muy simple de cómo los casos aumentan de manera rápida cuando solo una persona infectada con el COVID-19 infecta a un promedio de 1.5 personas más. Es decir, si hay dos personas infectadas, infectará otras tres personas y esas tres personas infectarán a cuatro personas y esas cuatro personas infectarán a seis personas. Finalmente, esas seis personas van a infectar a nueve personas. Solo con este ejemplo, describimos cómo dos casos se convierten muy rápidamente en 24 casos. Y el aumento surge de manera inmediata. También, para terminar, hay que explicar el impacto del efecto dominó que tiene la transmisión en los residentes, lo cual es motivo de especial preocupación. Los casos semanales entre los profesionales de la salud han aumentado a 71% desde la primera semana de noviembre. Los nuevos brotes diarios en los lugares de trabajo han aumentado a 172%, 
los casos nuevos semanales entre las personas que residen en los centros de enfermería especializada han aumentado a 89%. Y los estudiantes han aumentado a 224% desde el principio de noviembre. Este virus es implacable y seguirá siéndolo hasta que tengamos la vacuna. Por ello, debemos ser pacientes y optimistas. Ya estamos a pocos meses de lograr tener la vacuna. Esta será nuestra luz final de este túnel tan oscuro que nos ha retado en todo este tiempo. Y aún nos hemos llegado a alcanzar nuestros objetivos. Sabemos que ahora estamos en el peor momento que hemos experimentado a través de esta pandemia. Y por lo tanto, debemos tener todas las precauciones para protegernos, proteger a los demás. Por favor, vamos a comprometernos hoy y durante los próximos meses a hacer la solución de esta terrible pandemia. Muchísimas gracias. Now the remarks in Korea. Thank you. 안녕하십니까? 우리는 LA 카운티에서 아주 두려운 증가율과 수치를 보고 있습니다. 이것은 우리 모두가 사업체와 개개인 모두가 확산을 늦추기 위해서 가지고 있는 도구를 사용할 때에만 해결할 수 있는 문제입니다. 바로 얼굴 가리개를 사용하고 거리두기를 하고 큰 무리를 멀리하고 모임을 갖지 않고 직원과 손님들을 보호하기 위해서 사업체의 프로토콜을 잘 따르는 것입니다. 수영을 제외하고는 야외에선 얼굴 가리개를 사용하지 않는 활동은 있을 수 없습니다. 어디를 가든지 다른 사람들로부터 6피트 거리를 두어야 합니다. 제한이나 요구 조건이 많이 없던 주에서 일어나고 있는 일들을 보면 어, 그 주들이 케이스가 급증하고 있음을 볼수 있습니다. 노스 다코다 주에서는 제한이 많이 없었을 때 케이스 줄이 10만 명당 만 명이었습니다. 이 주에서는 800명의 주민당 1명이 COVID-19으로 사망하는 일이 있었습니다. 아이오와 주에서는 10만 명당 7,000명의 케이스가 있었습니다. 그에 비해서 캘리포니아 주는 비교적 제한이 많았는데 케이스율이 10만 명당 3,000명이었습니다. 분명 이러한 요구 조건들과 제한들은 바이러스를 확산을 늦추는데 도움이 되고 있습니다. 어제 우리는 팬데믹 이래로 가장 높은 케이스 수와 병원 입원자 수를 기록하였습니다. 우리 각자는 결정을 내릴 수 있는 기회들이 있습니다. 우리는 문제의 원인이 되기를 원합니까? 아니면 이 증가율을 해결하는 해결책이 되기를 원합니까? 왜냐하면 이러한 결정들이 우리가 사랑하는 사람들의 삶과 죽음에 영향을 미치기 때문입니다. 먼저 현재 상황에 대해서 업데이트를 알려드리겠습니다. 오늘 40명의 새로운 사망자를 보고하게 되어 유감스럽게 생각합니다. 이중 22명은 80세 이상으로 이중 17명은 기저질환이 있었습니다. 8명은 65세에서 79세 사이로 이중 6명은 기저질환이 있었습니다. 6명은 50세에서 64세 사이고 이중 5명은 기저질환이 있었습니다. 2명은 30에서 49세 사이였고 이들은 기저질환이 없었습니다. 롱비치시에서 2명의 사망자에 대한 내용은 웹사이트 롱비치.gov에서 보실 수 있습니다. 38명의 사망자 중에서 6명은 전문 간호시설에 살고 있었습니다. 
이로써 LA 카운티에서의 총 사망자 수는 7,740명입니다. 인종과 민족성이 알려진 7,305명 중에서 52%는 라틴 계열, 24%는 백인, 14%는 동양인, 9%는 흑인, 1% 미만은 태평양섬 원주민, 1%는 기타 인종이었습니다. 오늘 5,987개의 새로운 케이스가 보고되었습니다. 이로써 LA 카운티에서의 총 케이스 수는 41만 4,185개입니다. 이 케이스 수는 롱비치시에서 만 6,786건, 파사디나시에서 3,746건을 포함한 것이고 이두 시는 보건부가 따로 있습니다. 노숙자 가운데에서는 2,439명의 확진 케이스가 있었습니다. 현재 2,439명이 코비드19로 병원에 입원해 있으며 24%는 중환자실에 13%는 인공호흡기에 의존해 있습니다. 하나 이상의 확진 케이스가 나온 2,771개의 거주시설과 비거주시설을 조사하였는데 현재 751개는 조사 중이며 2,020개는 조사를 마친 상태입니다. 시설에서의 총 확진 케이스 수는 4만 4,263건이고 2만 1,311명은 거주민, 2만 2,952명은 스탭들이었습니다. 현재까지 370만 명이 테스트를 받았고 확증률은 10%였습니다. 11월 1일부터 11월 22일까지 단주 3주간 평균 1일 케이스 수는 225%가 증가하여 1,223개에서 3,976개가 되었고 지난 한주반 동안 평균 매일 5,300개의 케이스를 넘었습니다. 11월 30일 30일에 LA 카운티에서의 확증률은 10.2%였는데 이 수치는 11월 1일에 3.9%의 수치에 비유할 수 있습니다. 11월 15일에 평균 1일 병원 입원자 수는 1,063명이었습니다. 그런데 2주 후에 11월 28일 그 수는 2,062명으로 증가하였고 이 수치는 단지 2주 만에 94%가 증가한 수치입니다. 다시 한번 말씀드리지만 오늘로써 2,439명이 병원에 입원해 있으며 COVID-19로 인해 아주 심각한 상태입니다. 11월 9일부터 평균 1일 사망률은 92% 증가하여 12명에서 23명이 되었습니다. 지난주에 평균 1일 사망자 수는 38명이었습니다. 이 사망률은 한달 전의 케이스 수에 비한 것이기 때문에 케이스 수가 계속 증가할수록 사망자 수 역시 계속 증가할 것을 보고 있습니다. 이 숫자들은 우리의 이웃, 또 친구, 부모, 형제, 자매들을 의미하는 것입니다. 그러므로 사업체들과 주민 여러분 모두 보건 담장단 명령에 밀접히 따르도록 부탁드립니다. 바로 가장 중요한 이유가 사망자 수를 줄이기 위한 것입니다. 9월에 인종과 민족성 그룹 간의 차이를 좁히는데 노력을 많이 해왔었는데 이제 다시 그 간격이 매우 넓어졌습니다. 특히 라틴계 주민들이 다른 그룹들에 비해서 그러합니다. 라틴계 주민들의 7일 평균 케이스 수는 10만 명당 270명인데 이 수는 백인 주민보다 2배 높고 흑인 주민들은 112명, 동양 주민들은 80명이었습니다. 라틴 주민들의 병원 입원율은 10만 명당 24명인데 
이 수는 백인 주민보다 3배 높은 수치입니다. 백인 주민들은 10만 명당 9명, 동양 주민들은 10만 명당 8명입니다. 흑인 주민들은 10만 명당 15명으로 두 번째로 높은 입원율을 보이고 있습니다. 백인들과 동양 주민들의 사망률은 10만 명당 1명에 머물러 있는 반면 라틴 계열과 흑인 주민들은 그 수가 증가하고 있습니다. 2주 안에 라틴 계열 주민들의 사망률은 10만 명당 1.5에서 3명으로 증가하였고 흑인 주민들은 10만 명당 1명 미만에서 거의 1.7명으로 증가하였습니다. 11월 20일에 낮은 리소스 지역에 사는 사람들은 10만 명당 364명의 케이스류이었고 높은 리소스 지역에 사는 사람들은 10만 명당 221명의 케이스류이었습니다 낮은 리소스 지역에 사는 사람들의 사망률은 그렇지 않은 지역의 사망 사람들보다 3배 높은 수치를 보이고 있습니다. LA 카운티에서의 점염이 확산되면서 커뮤니티 헬스 워커들의 아웃리치 활동이 매우 중요한 부분이 되고 있습니다. 커뮤니티 헬스 워커들은 코비드19에 대한 정확하고 최신 정보를 제공하고 있습니다. 이 커뮤니티 헬스 워커 아웃리치 활동의 목표는 코비드19 메시지를 알리고 정보를 제공하는 것인데 특히 코비드19가 어떻게 확산이 되고 진단을 받았다면 무엇을 해야 하며 친구나 가족 또 커뮤니티를 안전하게 보호하는 방법들에 대한 내용을 알리는 일을 하고 있습니다. 커뮤니티 헬스 워커들은 또한 주민들이 필요한 서비스를 제공받고 특히 건강보험이나 테스트를 받고 정신건강 서비스와 연결되고 음식을 구하거나 거주시설에 대한 지원을 마련하고 있습니다. 이들은 현재 보건 지침이 무엇인지 주민들이 알수 있게 하고 현재 열려있는 사업체들에서 안전하게 직원들을 보호할 수 있도록 도와주고 있습니다. 또한 주민들이 접촉 추적 조사에 참여하는 것의 중요성을 알고 코비드19에 대한 루머나 미신을 설명해주는 일도 하고 있습니다. 11월 29일까지 240명의 커뮤니티 헬스 워커들이 14,000개의 아웃리치를 했고 1월 3일 3분의 1의 활동들은 주민들을 대면하여 서포트하는 일을 하였습니다. 또한 2분의 1은 사업체나 커뮤니티 조직에서 대면 활동을 하였습니다. 18%는 개개인들에게 원격으로 접촉을 하였고 1%는 그룹이나 단체들과 원격 모임을 통해서 접촉을 하였습니다. 11월 23일 주간에 모든 접촉자들은 COVID-19에 대한 안전 메시지를 받았고 8%는 사업체 서티피케이션 프로그램에 대한 정보를 받았으며 12%는 종교단체를 위해 마련된 메시지를 받았습니다. 마지막으로 케이스가 어떻게 빠르게 증가할 수 있는지를 보여주는 예를 들고 싶습니다. 예를 들어서 한 명이 코비드19로 감염이 되었을 때 평균적으로 두 명의 다른 사람을 감염시킵니다. 이두 명은 다시 다른 네 명을 감염시키고 이네 명은 다시 여덟 명을 감염시킵니다. 이 여덟 명은 열여섯 명을 또 열여섯 명은 32명을 감염시킵니다. 이한 예에서만도 두 명의 케이스가 순식간에 총 63개의 케이스가 될수 있음을 볼수 있습니다. 그에 더해서 이러한 증가율은 특히 한 그룹에 영향을 미치고 있습니다. 
11월 첫째 주부터 의료 서비스 종사자들 가운데 케이스 수가 71% 증가하였습니다. 직장에서의 새로운 발병률도 172%가 증가하였습니다. 전문 간호시설에서의 케이스 수는 89% 증가하였습니다. 학교나 학생, 학교에서 학생과 직원 모두를 포함하여 224%가 증가하였습니다. 이 바이러스는 매우 가혹합니다. 이것은 수백만 명의 주민들과 근로자들이 백신 접종을 받을 때까지 계속될 것입니다. 우리는 현재 이 팬데믹 가운데서 가장 안 좋은 때를 경험하고 있습니다. 오늘부터 다음 몇달 동안 우리는 우리, 우리 자신과 다른 사람들을 보호하겠다고 약속하시기 바랍니다. 감사합니다. Next, Alan Chang will brief in Mandarin. Thank you. 各位下午好，感谢你们参加我们的新闻发布会。今天我会继续为大家更新以近日速度攀升的新冠病例，同时我也会大家提供那些自疫情开始就受到了严重冲击的群群体。我也会给大家更新卫生局外延医务人员走进
十七人患有其他疾病。八人的年龄介于六十五岁到七十九岁之间，其中六人患有其他疾病。六人年龄介于五十岁到六十四岁之间，其中五人患有其他疾病。两人的年龄介于三十到四十九岁之间，两人都没有患其他疾病。长滩市有两例病死亡病例，有关资料可以在长滩市市说网站查找。在这不包括长滩市的三十八个去世的病人中，六人来自苏联护理机构。很不幸，这样落线总的死亡人数就达到了七千七百四十人。这一数字让人极度悲伤。我们在此为那些失去亲人和所有。的人送去我们的哀悼。因新冠病毒去世的人中，已有七千三百零五人逐一被进行分类。分类结果如下：拉丁裔占百分之五十二，白人占百分之二十四，亚洲人占占百分之十四，非裔占百分之九。受夏威夷和太平洋群岛的原住民所占比例不足百分之一。还有百分之一属其他族裔。今天我们新添五千九百八十七例的新的病例，这样洛杉矶县的总病例就攀升到了四十四十一万四千一百八十五例，这其中包括一万六千七百八十六例来自于长滩市的，还有三千七百四十六例的来自帕萨迪纳市的。这两个城市都有自己的市独立卫生部。无家可归的人群中，有累计新冠病例人数为两千四百三十九人。现有确诊新冠病患者的住院人数为两千四百三十九人，其中百分之四十四二十四的人住在加护病房，百分之十三的人使用了呼吸机。我们已对两千七百七十一个大型住宅和非住宅机构进行了调查，这些机构中至少有一个人是患有新冠病，其中七百五十一个人、五十一个机构仍在调查中，两千零二十个已结束了调查。机构确诊病例的总数为四万四千。两百六十三人，其中居民为两万一千三百一十一人，员工为两万两千九百五十二人。所有监禁场所总的确诊病例为四千一百零四人，其中三千五百六十七人为囚犯，五百三十七人为职员。加州监狱有两百九十九例，其中两百一十七人为囚犯，八十二人为管教人员。联邦监狱有七百六十二例，其中七百四十三例为囚犯，十九人为管教人员。少年管教所有两百零七人，其中九十八人为囚犯，一百零九人为管教人员。到目前为止，洛县有超过三百七十万的居民进行了新冠病毒测试，并报上了测试结果，其中百分之十的测试呈阳性。康复数据、事发日病例的数据、跟踪并记录新冠
，疫情相关数据非常重要。经过数月的跟踪和记录，我们知道我们所在的处境及病情的走向。第一图显示了事发日数据的七天平均平均值。事发日数据是指当事人测试的日期和第一次出现症状的日期。图中显示新冠病例。的病例数一直在上升，并超过了夏天的高峰值。从十月一号到十月二十二号，仅仅三周之内，每日平均值就增加了百分之两百二十五，从一千二百二十三例到三千九百七十六例。而过去的一周半内，这一数据又爬升到了每天平均值五千三百例。晨阳率，该图显示晨阳率。与新天病例类似，晨阳率也在攀升。在十一月三十号，洛县的晨阳率是百分之十点二，而十一月一号才百分之三点九。每日住院人数，随着新的病例的攀升，重病人数也相应的攀升，因此住院人数也跟进。十一月十五号，每日平均住院人数为一千零六十三例。两周后的十一月二十八号，这一数字攀升到了两千零六十二例，即百分之九十四的增加。而至今日，我现在住院人数达到了两千四百三十九例。每日死亡人数，很不幸，每日死亡人数有随着病例和住院人数的增加而增加，而且是暴增。从十一月九号每日平均死亡人数攀升了百分之九十二，从十二例到了二十三例。过去一周，每日平均死亡人数到达了三十八人。我们知道，死亡人数反映的是一个月前的病例人数。随着新的病例的急剧增加，我们会非常悲切的看到死亡人数也会一直增加。社区服务工作者的外出援助，随着诺县病例传播的增加，我们社区医务工作、医务工作者的外援互助活动。各重大灾区带去了重要的帮助。到十一月二十九号，总共两百四十位社区医务工作者进行了总的总计一万四千多例的外院活动，其中三分之一的活动涉及提供个人帮助，一半的个人帮助活动是在企业或社区进行的。病例是如何呈指数级数增长的？最后，我想用一个简单的例子来说明病例是如何呈指指数级级别增长的。当一个感染者感染平均两人时，这两人又会感染四个人，而这四个人又会感染八个人，八个人又会感染十六个人，十六个人又会感染三十二个人。到这里，这一个人已经感染了总共三十六个人。还有连串效应。上面提及的情况对特殊人群都有具有连串效应。从十一月的第一周，医务人员感染数增加了百分之七十一，而十一月初工作场所的爆发增加了百分之一百七十二，而在熟练护理机构内，这一增加为百分之八十九。在学校，员工和学生自十一月初增加了百分之两百二十四。新冠病毒是无情的，而且会持续无情的攻击我们。
，除非我们在诺县居住和工作的百万大众注射疫苗。我们离注射疫苗尚远，但我们已经在黑暗的隧道的那端看到了光明。我们现在处在疫情开始以来最糟糕的时候，这个时候我们每一个人要万分警醒，利用一切可以利用的工具来保护我们和我们周围的人群。That concludes for today. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health podcast. <laughs>